Ho, ho, ho! It's the Naked Scientists with a festive special. Hello, welcome to a special festive Naked Scientist show. It's brought to you from the Naked Scientist Experimental Kitchen. Actually, that's at my house. Let me introduce the crew. We have with us this week Dominic Ford. Hello, Dominic. Hello, Chris. Dominic is our naked astronomer and space scientist extraordinaire. We also have Dangerous Dave, Dave Ansell, who uh, in a past life or in a previous Naked Scientist existence has measured how fat you would have to be to stop a bullet with your beer gut. Indeed, indeed. Um, hopefully no one's getting that fat because it was involved a metre of fat. So yeah, you'd be dead from cholesterol poisoning Christmases a long first. time before you actually needed that sort of inbuilt body armour. That's entirely true. We also have with us this week Paul Mullins from Bangor University. And Paul is an expert, it turns out, on the science of shopping. Hello, Paul. G'day, Chris. How are you? <laughs> Um, very well, thanks. Paul's going to be joining us later in the programme to discuss how he's been doing research, looking at whether or not we're any good at really spotting a bargain. Now, the reason we're sitting in my kitchen is because we're going to be doing all kinds of experiments, the chemistry of Christmas, no less, including a giant finale with a hydrogen-powered party popper. Plus, we have with us Professor Colin Humphreys. He's from the Material Science Department at Cambridge University. He has brought along lots of gadgets to play with because he makes LEDs. And, of course, if you hadn't noticed, your Christmas tree is now bedecked not with fairy lights in the old-fashioned sense, but fairy lights now largely comprising LEDs, and he's going to tell us how they work. And he also has an interest in what the Star of Bethlehem might or might not have been, so he's going to tell us about that. But, of course, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without some really rather rubbish jokes, would it? So I've asked the teams to come up with their own special personal favourites. Uh, let's start with Paul Mullins. Well, Chris, what did the fish say when it swam into a brick wall? Um, no Dave? No idea. Uh, I'm going to go for Dam. That's correct, Chris. Uh, I've, I've got to run that one. Sorry. Okay. How about this? I looked up what was the Daily Telegraph's worst ten top jokes for 2007. I have to say they are really quite poor, Simon. But I quite liked this one. What is a specimen? I don't know, Chris. What do you think, Paul? I don't know. Italian astronaut. What kind of relationship did Mary and Joseph have, Chris? Don't know. What kind of relationship did Mary and Joseph have? A stable relationship. A stable one. That's and why did bad. Santa have trouble selling Rudolph and Blitzen on eBay? I don't know. Why? Because they were too dear. Oh, fantastic. If you can better that, we reckon you can, then please get in touch. You can get onto Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. You can also email chris at thenakedscientists.com. If you have a better joke, well, that's not hard, actually, a better bad joke, that's what we want to hear, better bad joke, or anything to do with the science or chemistry of Christmas. Coming up in a second, we'll find out why they shove ice and salt on the roads. But first, let's uh, get stuck into some questions. So, Dave, got this one here, which is from Nina. And Nina says, what's got a lower boiling point, given we're talking about cold things? Liquid hydrogen or liquid helium, and why? How lower boiling point things have got is basically the less well things, the molecules stick together, the lower the boiling point, because in order to stay stuck together at higher, higher temperatures, there's more energy there trying to break them apart. So you need to have a stronger bond between the molecules. And the weakest bonds you can get, you want smaller, the smallest um, molecules you can get, and the smallest number of atoms in each molecule also makes those um, bonds even weaker. And so the lowest temperature boiling point is helium. Actually, there's two different types of helium. 
helium-3 and helium-4, which are slightly different masses, slightly different number of neutrons, and the lowest boiling point of any material at all is helium-3, which is, I think, 3 or 4 Kelvin above absolute zero, so about minus 274 degrees. It seems the wrong way around, doesn't it? You expect hydrogen to be the really cold one, but (laughs) helium pips it to the post. Hydrogen is pretty cold, but not as cold as helium. Well, sticking with the science of the very cold, Dominic... Of course, we've just had the shortest day of the year, and so it's very cold outside, and there's often ice on the roads, and it can be quite treacherous driving. So what do we do when there's ice on the roads? Well, we put salt on there to try and melt that ice. And I've got an experiment here to try and show why we put salt on the roads. OK, so we've uh, been down the local boozer, and you've got really quite a prodigious amount of ice there. A lot of ice here. I'm going to break some off, and I'm going to drop it into this glass... Now, first of all, what temperature lovely cocktail, do you think that, that ice is at, Chris? Um, well, it's ice, so what, the zero? So I've got a thermometer here, and in fact it's a special kind of thermometer, so it looks at the infrared radiation coming off, off that ice. It tells me on this LCD display what temperature we're seeing. It's actually about three, three. degrees. <laughs> is that, how, does it, how can it be above freezing? It's ice. Well, it's quite warm in here, and I think that ice is starting to melt. There's a layer of water on top. And in fact, ice isn't always exactly at zero. Um, you can warm it up a bit, and it's in the process of melting, um, but it's just not all melted yet. Now, I've got some salt here. So just like you put salt on the roads, I'm going to put some salt on this ice in this glass. Sprinkle lots on. You might just about hear a cracking noise as that yeah, ice is Yeah, fairly generous portion. That's not good for your blood pressure. You're not going to drink that, are you? I think that wouldn't taste too good if we were to drink it. But what temperature do you think that ice is at now, given I put that salt on it? Well, it was at three-ish. And it's, it's melting, so I suppose it must, be, it must be the same. Well, let's put it to the test. I've got the thermometer here, so point it in. It's oh, no way, minus 14. 14, already minus 15, minus, minus 14, minus 15 degrees. So that's, that's, a, that's amazing, that's, that's 18 degrees lower than it was just before you put the salt on. Why, why does the temperature go down? So it's incredibly cold in there, because what you're doing... Water exists in two different forms. The solid form, where the water molecules are all bound together in a lattice and a liquid form, which is the water that we saw forming on that that ice. Now, when it goes from the solid form to a liquid form, you're breaking apart all those bonds inside that ice, and that takes a lot of energy. And that energy has to come from somewhere, and the only place it can come from is the surroundings. So it turns its thermal heat energy into the energy needed to break apart those bonds in that ice. Seems really paradoxical that the way we actually melt ice on the road, then, is by making the temperature lower. Yeah, so when you see that slush on the road that's been formed when you put that salt on the road, that's actually much colder than the ice that was there before. But importantly, it's not solid anymore, so you're not going to stick your car on it. Cool, literally. Boom. So what can we do with this, apart from melt ice on roads? Why is this useful, knowing this? Well, back in the Victorian times, this was actually quite useful because people liked ice cream back then, just as they do now. But without freezers in kitchens, obviously it was quite hard to make things really very cold. So you wanted a different way of making things very cold, and this is a chemical reaction, which is actually doing exactly that. It's making the turning time from 3 degrees C down to minus 15. Now, you said earlier on that you would like me to bring along something sweet and nice to your party. Yeah, indeed. And I thought I'd make some ice cream, but I've got a confession to make here, because I didn't really put it in the freezer. That isn't it, is it? This is the ice cream, but as you can see, it's a bit sloppy, isn't it? Because I didn't really have time to freeze it. It looks disgusting. It looks it's not even disgusting. frozen. So we've got some cream in there, we've got some sugar in there. I've got some vanilla essence here that I can put in to make it a bit more vanilla-flavoured. 
but that's nice. Yeah. That but it's still not ice cream, nice. Dominic. This is not so frozen. We're going to have to use a bit of science to try and make this ice cream nice and cold. And I've got Dave standing next to me with some liquid nitrogen, which he's going to pour in to make this ice cream suddenly an awful lot colder. So liquid nitrogen is what happens when you take nitrogen, which is a gas in the air, and cool it down to minus 196 degrees centigrade. And if you look in there, you should be able to see a liquid. Yeah, Dave's got a sort of thermos flask here. Is, is it a really thermos? It is a thermos flask. Yeah. I stole it from home. And it just looks like you've got... It looks like water in there, except that if I blow across the top, I make a huge cloud of... Well, it looks like smoke, but it's, it's obviously not smoke. Why does it do that? So that's a very, very cold nitrogen. So the nitrogen is boiling off there all the time. And when it boils off, it's minus 196 degrees centigrade. When your warm breath meets that, it suddenly gets very, very cold, at which point any water vapour in there condenses out and forms a cloud. And in fact, that's how clouds form in the sky. So we're going to make ice cream at minus 196 degrees. Is this going to work? It, it'll certainly freeze. You, you <laughs> have to wait to eat it because it's got to warm up first. You want me to eat this? Um, if you would like some ice cream, you're more than welcome to eat it. Where did the um, nitrogen come from? The pathology department. Ah, has it had body bits frozen in it then? You're the pathologist, Chris. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do this. OK, so we have a large mixing bowl about a foot across. There is this squidgy mixture that looks like custard in it, um, which is the cream and the sugar. And Dave's now pouring the thermos flask into oh my goodness the kitchen is disappearing under a cloud of this smoke but through the smoke i can see yes the the stuff that was liquid is now turning solid so you're stirring frenziedly yeah i'm trying to even up the temperature because otherwise you get some bits at minus 196 and some bits still liquid would a chisel help it looks like it's, it's, it's not too bad we're getting there a bit more and actually this produces very good ice cream because if you make ice cream in the normal freezer it has, takes a long time to freeze and that means crystals have got a long time to form but if you put something at minus 196 degrees centigrade next to water it freezes so quickly that it forms lots and lots of very very small crystals it means it should be relatively smooth that's not looking bad actually should we, should we have a little taste or do we, should we let it warm up a bit and then have a taste in a minute well, it warm up a little bit. Otherwise, yeah, minus 196 could... be a bit chilly, wouldn't it? <laughs> OK, I'll leave Dave just doing a little bit more kitchen cookery there. Thank you very much. I'm sure it will taste delicious. We'll taste it in just a second. But, first of all, one thing that's guaranteed to also feature in your traditional Christmas, it's not quite as popular as ice cream, is Brussels sprouts. But you might be able to manage to eat them politely, but they do have an embarrassment in store for you later, don't they? But why? Well, Sarah Castor-Perry has the answer. Every Christmas, one vegetable divides opinion. Brussels sprouts. Some of us love them, some of us hate them. But eating them can have some <coughs> embarrassing consequences. <coughs> sprouts aren't the only thing that causes gas to build up in our intestines. Baked beans are notorious in this department too. But what actually is flatulence? Well, some of it is caused by swallowed air... We all swallow air when we eat and drink, but the worst offenders are gum chewers. Some of this swallowed air comes back up again as a burp, but any that doesn't can pass through the digestive tract and emerge again at the other end in the usual tuneful fashion. 
but most of the gas that ends up as flatulence is actually formed fresh inside our intestines by the colonies of bacteria that live there as a normal part of their microbial metabolism. They pump out variable volumes of nitrogen, methane, carbon dioxide and hydrogen. These are thankfully all odourless and largely harmless gases, although hydrogen and methane are quite combustible, as some party pranksters armed with a lighter and a convenient episode of wind will attest to. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some of the other gaseous products of bacterial digestion are much less easy on the olfactory system. Hydrogen sulphide reeks of rotten eggs, and methyl mercaptan, which stinks of mouldy cabbages, is the same stuff that's deployed by skunks as part of their repellent arsenal. But why are some foods far more fartogenic than others? And why does the bouquet of some airborne toxic events place them on the cusp of being classified as chemical weapons? As a rule, foods that trigger flatulence are those that can't be completely broken down in the stomach or small intestine. This means that partially digested foodstuffs then make their way into the colon, where they can feed a large bowel bacterial banquet with predictable odiferous effects. And this is where the sprouts come in. Sprouts, along with onions, beans and dairy products, are hard to digest in the stomach and small intestine because our bodies can't produce the enzymes needed to break down some of the chemical components they contain. The main culprit in sprouts is a complex sugar called raffinose, which is also found in cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, kale and in fact all members of the brassica family of vegetables. Raffinose is broken down by an enzyme called alpha-galactosidase, But as we don't make this enzyme in our guts, the raffinose, together with other complex sugars like the inulin, which is present in beans, arrive in the large intestine. Some of the bowel bacteria are armed with the necessary chemical knives and forks to break these sugars down, but in the process they churn out hydrogen, methane and carbon dioxide. So that's why sprouts make you produce gas... But why the particularly pungent smell that you often get as an unwelcome addition to the Christmas table? This doesn't smell quite the way I expected. Well, one thing that all brassicas also have in common is that they're full of sulphur-containing defensive chemicals. They're there to deter animals from feeding on their leaves and are also what cause the strong and sometimes bitter flavours of these vegetables that put some people off eating them altogether. And it's these sulphur-containing chemicals that the bacteria turn into hydrogen sulphide and methyl mercaptan. Added in small amounts to the bulky sugar fueled fart gas already being produced, these gases are offenders that can clear a room in seconds. <coughs> but is there a way of solving the problem? apart from avoiding sprouts in the first place, of course. Unfortunately, some people are just more prone to producing their own airborne toxic events owing to the unique community of bacteria with which they're colonised. Some guts are just more fart-friendly, you could say. And if this is the case for you, then perhaps Buck Weimer of Pueblo, Colorado can help. He won an Ig Nobel Prize in 2001 for his invention of underwear that contains a removable filter to help soak up any nasty niffs. For those who don't like the sound of charcoal-stuffed pants, there are some enzyme-containing dietary supplements that can help break down the complex sugars, reducing the personal fart risk. But fart experts agree there is no surefire way to prevent those Brussels sprouts sounding a bum note on Boxing Day. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. And to you, Sarah, you can head off to the toilet now. That's Sarah Castor-Perry with the science of Brussels sprouts. In a second, we'll hear from John in Warrington, who has a question, I suppose, allied 
to that subject. You're listening to The Naked Scientist Christmas Special with Dominic Ford and Dave Ansell. Coming up in a second, we'll hear from Paul Mullins about why your brain isn't necessarily well-tuned to spot those bargains when you're being offered them in the supermarket. Also, Colin Humphreys is with us from the University of Cambridge. He's an expert on LED technology and also what the star of Bethlehem might or might not have been. That's all coming up. But if you have a question for us, then please email your questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. We're also after your terrible Christmas jokes. We've heard from Mikey213 on Twitter who says, uh, what do you get if you eat Christmas decorations? Any offers, Dominic or Dave? I can tell you the answer is tinselitis. Oh. Oh, that's pretty bad. And uh, Carrie Marvelli says, why was Santa's little helper feeling depressed? Because he had low elf esteem. I'm sure you can do better. Or you can come up with a Christmas question for us. This one's from Stephen Hayes. I reckon this is probably one for you, Dominic, because with it being Christmas and Father Christmas coming from up north, what Stephen Hayes asks is, is north really north? In other words, um, he says, I was wondering why magnetic north is not called south, as a positive will repel another positive. When a needle's magnetised, it's repelled from the south and attracted to the north. Is the world really upside down? Is Australia actually the land down under? Well, kind of, yes, actually. It is rather confusing because when you've got a magnet in your compass then the part of that arrow that points towards north, that is a North Pole magnet. But it's being attracted towards the North Pole on the Earth. And the reason for that is because the magnet inside the Earth actually has its South Pole above what we call the North Pole, and its North Pole above what we call the South Pole. So in a way, the magnet in the Earth is the opposite way round from what you'd expect. And the North Pole of a magnet, the old-fashioned name for it, was the North-Seeking Pole rather than the North Pole because it points towards the North Pole of the Earth, which is actually a South-Seeking Pole. That sounds magnet. good, yes. though, if Father Christmas lives at the South-Seeking or North-Seeking Pole, does it? It's better to say North Pole, isn't it? Bit of a mouthful, perhaps. Now, I don't know about you, but in the run-up to Christmas, well, it's a time of year when you find yourself desperately wandering around in the shops trying to work out what presents you should buy for relatives that you, quite frankly, haven't seen since last Christmas. But if you find yourself being tempted by items that are on special offer, how good are you at picking out the promotions that offer good value for money? Well, one man who's trying to find that answer out is Paul Mullins from Bangor University. Have you been appalled by our terrible jokes, Paul? No, I've been quite amused, actually. It's, it's been a fun show so far. Jolly good. Well, tell us about this study you did then. How did you do it? And what were you trying to find out? What we were looking at was how the brain responds to special offers. So this was actually an fMRI study. Um, which we were commissioned to do by SBXL, who are a commercial company. And they're interested in the science of offers and how the brain responds to them. And we had six different types of offers, which were typical offers that you'd see in a store. So we had good multi-buys, where the price of the multi-buys so at two for so many pounds or three for so many pounds, where it would be 80% better than if you were to just buy the items at the normal price. Uh, we also had bad multi-buys, where the price of the multi-buy was a little bit more than it would have been normally. We had just basic price discounts, and then we had special offers, where there was no real indication about how much you were saving, but those offers were actually worse. And so we had people do this task, and they had about 162 items, and we asked them to, be, to imagine they were shopping for a party, um, and they had to go through the shop and collect, and an image would flash off of the, of the item with the offer, and then they had to choose how many to buy, one, two, or three. And what we found was that although, on whole, people were able to pick more of the good offers than the bad, it wasn't, they weren't as good at that as we might have thought, with up to 30% bad offers being chosen. And it turns out the biggest culprit for this is the old special offer. So if you see something that says special offer with no other information, 
Be careful, it may not be. And you're more likely to think it is. Are they equivalently likely to fall for these offers regardless of how long they've been shopping? Or is there a kind of decision fatigue that goes on? Because I know if you make people make lots and lots of decisions, in the end you can just think, do you know what, I'm so knackered with all of this, I'll just have that one. Well, in our study, we didn't actually see any of that happen. Our result was, well, our study was about 30 minutes of shopping, and we didn't see a decrement in performance over time, at least within that session. However, we did notice that our older participants tended to be not as good at picking good from bad offers than our younger participants. So we had a wide range of participants, age ranges from about 20 or 18, because we have student population at the university, but we also got, uh, you know, sections from the community, so we're up to 70 and 80 year olds. And that's where they got a little bit worse. Um, and so that's another thing to be careful of. And we think that may be a result of, you know, you're used to offers actually being offers. So you're more likely to bite at them, as it were. So in other words, we go in there trusting the store, trusting the brand, and expecting them to do the honest thing, when actually very often they're not. They know we fall for these things. Well, I'm not going to say that that's what the shops do, but it's highly likely that, that if that was happening, we, we are more likely to fall for those things. Now, I'm not saying that's what people do. But, you know, it, so it means when you do go into a store and you're thinking about these things, be careful about what you know, how, you, how trusting you are of the shops. Uh, of course, we were interested in what parts of the brain were involved, and we found that quite a lot of the brain, obviously, is involved when you're making these decisions, which is what you'd expect. But we also found that the more complex the offer was, the less your brain was involved, so the more likely you were to just guess that that was a good offer. Mm. So is there a way that you could turn the formula around and say, right, now you know what constitutes an offer that people fall for, you could work out ways to actually exploit how people's brains respond to these offers to make people more likely to buy them? You could. You could also do, you know, the other things that we're looking at is, you know, what does this tell us about the way people look at offers when they see them? How do they process them? Because that may be more useful uh, from the signs of brand movement, new products and so forth. And that's sort of what we're looking at now. And that's, we're doing a more in-depth um, analysis now to look at the different types of offers and how they may be, you know, changing the way the brain is reacting. Paul Mullins. Coming up in a bit, we'll be making a hydrogen-powered party popper. We're putting that right at the end of the show, just in case the consequences are slightly more negative and explosive than we had anticipated. We're also asking you for awful Christmas jokes. We've also heard from Joe Wright, who says, what does Miley Cyrus have for Christmas dinner? Twerky. About that. Right, let's find out how our ice cream got on. So, Dave, you actually made this ice cream, so... Um, I'll let you eat it. Uh, I'll have a little taste of this. Uh, oh, it's, it's very good texture, Dave. So this was ice cream that Dave made by pouring liquid nitrogen at minus 196 degrees C into a cream sugar mix. Here we go. Actually, that's really very good. It's nice and solid looking it, at it. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, so it's got a very good now. consistency. What you were saying about getting the crystals the right sort of shape and size... Uh, it is, seems to have applied there. That's lovely. Normally when you make ice cream yourself, it goes all gritty. Right, well, I understand that we have John in Warrington with us who's got a food-related Christmas question. Hello, John. Hello there. Well, I had a costly for four months, and I didn't really know this, but peas are one of the last things to digest. Why is that? Right, so why is it that we get what also gets dubbed the sweet corn effect? I think it's what you're asking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why do some things go straight through? It's interesting, because if you look at little kiddies, uh, they have something called peas and carrots diarrhoea, actually, yeah. and it's not unusual for young toddlers to have 
whole vegetables coming out in what comes out in their nappies. And you think there's something terribly wrong, but actually it just effectively reflects the fact that the digestive system isn't very well developed in youngsters and it gets better as we get older. But there are some things that still frustrate our digestive systems and we don't break them down very well. And things like sweet corn and things like peas have a very hard what we call pericarp. This is the structure around the outside of the fruit. So when it goes through... It's very resistant because it's got a lot of a chemical called cellulose in it. It's very resistant to digestion because we don't have digestive juices that can break down cellulose. And we rely on our bowel bacteria to do that for us. But even they have their limits. And as a result, if you don't chew up the sweet corn to break through that pericarp, then the digestive juices can't get inside it in order to attack what's on the inside. So it's just that cellulose suit of armour around the outside which stops it being broken down and nature takes its course and out the back end it comes. The other question is, because I had so much taken away, does it actually grow back? Does what grow back? Your intestine or whatever. What they do... Because a lot of people say to me, why is it you can't eat certain foods, such as digestive biscuits? Yes, no, I understand what you mean. If you have a large amount of the intestine removed, John, what can happen is that the absorptive surface, which takes out, in some cases, nutrients, but if it's the large bowel, then water isn't there. And so if you eat things that can bind a lot of water, then what actually gets turned normally into faeces stays very, very liquid. And as a result, you end up, you end up with a lot of water not being absorbed and there are the obvious consequences. So it's all to do really with what we call soluble fibre, and so some of these foodstuffs that have a lot of indigestible things in them bind a lot of water, and that makes things a lot more liquid. Well, but thank you for joining us on the programme. I was, I was enjoying it. Do you have a Christmas joke for us, John? Uh, yeah, why is it a car can't play football? A car can't play football? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to guess, but I'm going to go because it's only got one boot. That's right, you're dead right. Yeah, see, I should be writing these things. They're just so dreadful, aren't they? Thank you very much, John. Now, another way that we can regard Christmas is through a cocktail glass. (laughs) I can't have Christmas without cocktails. But what's actually going on inside the cocktail shaker? Well, to find out, I got together with the University of Western Ontario chemist and cocktail connoisseur, he calls himself a molecular mixologist, Darcy O'Neill. Well, early on, I studied chemistry, and then I ended up working at a refinery for six years, and then I decided to move on to a different city and didn't find anything that was really working for me career-wise, so I decided to do some bartending. And then I ended up back at the University of Western Ontario. Then I decided to take the science and apply it to the drinks that I was making. How did that go down with the customers? Went down really well. I was surprised at how well people, you know, usually you'd think people just come out for a drink. But once they started uh, understanding how the drinks were made and then bringing in some science to it, they really, really took to it. Was it relatively easy to start to dig into the chemistry of cocktails? Did you actually find that it was pretty easy to, from a chemist's point of view, understand what was going on? Or is there still just a black art to cocktail making and that shaken, not stirred is very much on the lips of the consumer, but there isn't much science behind it? Early on, I was probably one of the first dozen people to actually look at science and cocktails. So there was a lot of you know low-hanging fruit to uh, work with. So even just talking about ice, why things cool down, how they cool down talking about how certain things mix. I mean, that was pretty simple early on. Now it's actually getting more difficult because you're always trying to find new material or new and interesting facts that people want to hear. But the interesting thing is that we're now in a position where someone like you, who has a lot of chemistry knowledge behind you, can take your knowledge and explain what we're already doing. But could we turn the equation round and start saying, right, 
based on what we know about chemistry, we could start doing something very unusual to make a whole new type of drink or cocktail or combination or gustatory experience. That's actually starting to happen. It's following after molecular gastronomy, which is uh, the science and food. And what they've called it now is molecular mixology. And it's taking science and doing something with a cocktail to create something completely unique. And one of the the most interesting ones or early ones that really got a lot of media attention was uh, caviar. It's not really fish eggs, but they look like fish eggs. So what it was was they'd take sodium alginate and calcium chloride, add a, a flavor and mix it with the alginate, and then drop it into the calcium chloride and form these little spheres. One of the things you could do with these little spheres is put them in a glass of champagne, and they'd move up and down like a lava lamp. One of my favourite characters historically is James Bond, for all kinds of reasons. But is there any science behind his shaken-not-stirred claims? Yeah, actually, uh, last year at Tales of a Cocktail in New Orleans, which is a uh, kind of a conference for high-end bartenders and industry people, they looked at, you know, the science of shaking because you've always heard shaken or stirred or, you know, which one is better and which one produces a different drink. So they actually did a test. They took a cocktail shaker and put in a thermocouple, put different uh, amounts of ice, they weighed the ice, and then they'd shake them and see what would happen. And what they figured out is that for shaking a drink, if you shake it 20 times or approximately 20 seconds, that's as cold as it's going to get, which is about negative 7 Celsius. And then they found with stirring, it takes a lot longer to bring the drink down to that temperature. So probably twice as much time, 40 seconds, to get it to that plateau. Because it actually doesn't really go any colder than negative 7. There was a company that were claiming that their ice was the best ice for cocktail making, wasn't there? Um, Yeah. So that basically blows them out of the water. Well, it does. I mean, you know, there's still there's still good ice and bad ice. You know, obviously, ice picks up a lot of flavors, so using clean, fresh ice is always the best idea. There's uh, no such thing as the perfect ice for a cocktail. Any ice will do. What about if you used dry ice? <laughs> I don't mean that in a funny way, but that would presumably lower the temperature much further. Definitely, and but what happens is that it also carbonates the drink. You'll taste the acidity in it. So for a lot of people who do Halloween type drinks. They'd like to put the dry ice in it and make it froth and stuff. But if you've ever tasted it afterwards, it tastes much different. <laughs> you've tried that, have you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Working in a lab, I mean, there's always something I can try. So bring home dry ice and give it a shot. One of the other things that I heard one person saying um, with the shaken, not stirred business is that when you make a cocktail, some of the things mix quite well with stirring, but there are other heavier things that don't. And actually shaking the cocktail up does make a very big difference to the way in which the combinations of chemicals mix round and therefore the flavour sensation they impart to your tongue and your mouth will differ between shaking and stirring. Well the funny thing is one of the studies was done at the university I work at and it was about bruising gin. What they found was that it really doesn't change much but the oxidation potential goes up or something like that and it was a very slight difference but uh, never let facts get in the way of a good story. Because that's what uh, part of drinking is. You know, you go to a bar and you want to talk about things. If, you, if you're a little bit too matter-of-fact, it becomes uh, no fun to talk about it. I could not conclude an interview with an expert on the chemistry of cocktails and, um, I suppose, mixology without asking you, what is your favourite tipple? I'd have to say the Manhattan. If you go to a bar, usually you'll get it right. It's not a drink that you mess up too much. 
usually it's about two ounces of whiskey. Now, not Scotch whiskey, but uh, American whiskey or Canadian whiskey is the general preference. Half an ounce or two an ounce of sweet vermouth and a dash of bitters. Angostura bitters works amazingly well. And just basically stirred as opposed to shaken. And then garnish with a maraschino cherry. And served? In a cocktail glass or similar to a martini glass. I actually have a Manhattan glass, which is a little bit shorter. You've got to have the right kit. It's very important that a chemist has got the right glassware, isn't it? Absolutely. Glassware is something I've got a little bit too much of. It, uh, it's kind of a collection. This glass has to have everything right, or this drink has to have the right glass. Darcy O'Neill, absolutely. I mean, you can't serve anything that's not in the right glass, can you? You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dominic Ford and with Dave Ansell. Uh, we're talking about the chemistry and science of Christmas in general. We've made ice cream with liquid nitrogen here in my kitchen so far. Still to come, the hydrogen-powered party popper. We've also got uh, Colin Humphreys waiting in the wings, the man who works on LEDs. He's going to tell us how they work. He's got a whole heap of great gadgets in front of him to introduce us to, and he's also going to talk about the star that the wise men might have followed. What was it 2,000 years ago? Nicky Clarkson got in touch and said, what do you call Father Christmas if he's eaten too many sprouts? Father Christmas. <laughs> now, Chris, we've had a, uh, another cracker joke come in on the text messages. This is from John, who says, what do you give somebody for Christmas who has everything? Paul, <laughs> I guess what with your research, what do you think? Oh, uh, nothing? Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue. Well, the answer is antibiotics. <laughs> I like that. That's actually pretty good, isn't it, that's, for someone who has everything? not bad for a cracker joke. Pretty damn yes. good. Now, Dave, while we've been talking, I've noticed you've actually been uh, craftily helping yourself to my brandy. Um, you're not drinking it, though. What, what are you up to? Um, well, the first thing, I was wondering if anyone has a £10 note I could borrow. Well, look, my the... kids are here. Amelia, where's that money you got for your birthday? Here. <laughs> oh, that's very, very kind of you, Amelia. Um, I hope you're not going to be worried about what I'm going to do next. So what I'm first going to do is take this and soak it. That's all right. It's just in a bowl, Dave. It's OK. There's nothing to worry about now at the moment. It's Amelia's tenor. Oh, what are you putting on there? So this is basically brandy, um, which is, of course, <laughs> a mixture of alcohol and water. He's just soaking the £10 note. It's totally soaked. So we do now have a rather a damp £10 note. Right. And I will just take the bowl away. And I have a lighter. So what I'm going to do now is light the lighter. Oh my, that's very, very, that's a huge flame. Yep, yep, and now it's gone out. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose, obviously, what we're expecting is that the note is just going to burn up, and, and actually it hasn't. It ha no, that's right. Uh, essentially, There's a little hole in the corner there. You're just trying to keep... You've got your thumb on there so Amelia doesn't see it. But the, it's pretty much intact, isn't it? It's been on fire and it's pretty much intact. In order to get paper to burn, you've got to get it up to really quite a high temperature, a couple of hundred degrees centigrade. And if it's soaked in a mixture of water and alcohol, before it does that, the water and alcohol will evaporate. And so as long as it stays damp, the paper can't burn. And so the paper's absolutely fine, and it doesn't burst into flames. And so as long as you put it out before it dries out, you're absolutely fine. I didn't quite get there with this. You keep your thumb on that corner. How, how does this relate to, say, other things we've put booze onto a Christmas, like the Christmas pudding? So it's exactly the same reason why your Christmas pudding isn't horrible and burnt. It's because the alcohol is evaporating away instead of letting your Christmas pudding burn, and it can't burn while there's alcohol there. And, in fact, it's burning so cold that... Um, all the heat goes upwards, and it's absolutely fine. You could make a fortune if you were to sort of go down the pub and say to people, I bet you a tenner that I can set fire to this money without actually burning it. 
Not something I've tried, though it sounds like a good plan. Worth a try. Might pay for Christmas. Things are getting expensive these days. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford, actually coming live from my kitchen where we're doing all these experiments. Also, someone who's dropped in from the University of Cambridge is Professor Colin Humphreys. He's actually from the Department of Metallurgy and Material Sciences, and his chosen specialist subject is LEDs. Hello, Colin. Hi. Happy Christmas. Thank you, Andrew. So, t- so the one thing, and the reason I rang you up is because I suddenly had this epiphany when I looked at my Christmas tree. I realised that fairy lights aren't fairy lights in the strict sense of the meaning anymore. I mean, for a start, they work. Uh, they're still in a tangle, but they're not little bulbs. They're LEDs now. That's right, and they should last for your lifetime, probably, especially if you just use them every, every Christmas. So the LEDs are very long-lasting, and so it's a sort of disruptive technology. It's something which just replaces old-fashioned light bulbs. How do they work, LEDs? So LEDs are uh, what are called semiconductor materials, and they emit light when you pass a tiny current through them, so they're very energy efficient. In fact, I've got a child's toy here, uh, which looks like a pig. It's it's a a little pig, yeah. A little pig, and if I just, with (laughs) one finger, press this lever, and the light is shining brilliantly through its two eyes... Well, I, stop... I think those nostrils actually, aren't they? Because it's sort of oh, nose right, on the front. Oh, because the eyes are yeah. So it's yeah. Through, through its nostrils, and, and I've now stored enough energy. If I stop doing this and just turn the switch on, light still comes out. That's true, actually, because obviously with old-fashioned torches that had an incandescent bulb in it, didn't mm. it? And they never used to last very long, and they weren't very bright. But you just whizzed those handles, the little generator, I that's presume, right, on the side yes. there, and it's mm. extremely bright mm. for a long time. Yeah, that's right. So they're very, very energy efficient. And the white lights you have for white LED replacement lighting, they're all made from blue LEDs, and I have a blue LED here, so I'll just switch it on. And if you cover it, it's a brilliant blue Ooh, light. that's bright. And if you cover that with this yellow dome, which contains what's called a phosphor, so when you pass blue light through it, it excites yellow light, and the blue shines through the yellow, and you get white light out. This is that is how, how they make white LEDs, then? And that's how you make white LEDs. So you can't make uh, a white LED where just the the origin of the light is white. You have to go through a sort of trick like that. You go through a trick like this. You can actually make it by mixing red, green, blue LEDs, but the green aren't very efficient, so it's an expensive way to do it. But most of the cool white LEDs, bicycle lights, front bicycle lights, are just this blue light with the yellow on the top. And sometimes you'll see a bicycle coming towards you, it looks blue, and as it goes past you, it looks yellow. And that's a combination of blue and yellow, and the coating hasn't been very uniform. How do LEDs actually work? If we were to zoom in with a very powerful microscope and look at the structure of an LED, what is it? Right, so they've got quite a complicated structure, and in the middle of the LED there's a very thin layer called a quantum well, which is just about 10 atoms thick. It's composed of indium, gallium and nitrogen, indium, gallium nitride, and that very thin layer emits this brilliant light, so it's tremendously efficient, and that will emit light of any different colour. If you, if you vary the indium content, you can get green light or red light or blue light. To get white light, we need to start with blue light, and then we put this phosphor on to get the white light coming out. And why is it so much more efficient than the traditional fairy light you'd have in your Christmas tree? Well, the traditional fairy light, it mainly gives out heat, so it's a small version of this old-fashioned incandescent light bulb I'm holding up, and this only gives out 5% of the light. So you put an electrical current through this light bulb, 95% comes out as heat, 5% comes out as light. So it's really inefficient, only 5% efficient. I've got an email here from uh, Shahid who says, are LED lights harmful for health? 
they're actually very good for health. So people who suffer from SAD, seasonal affective disorder, affects 3 million people in the UK. The best treatment at the moment is for them to sit in this artificial light box with LED lighting. Um, and there's no ultraviolet component in this light because it's just blue light covered with yellow or maybe red, yellow or red phosphor. So actually they're very good for health. And they're good for paintings as well. The Queen in her picture gallery has LED lighting on top of the pictures, but it doesn't damage the pictures. Can you make any colour LEDs? Are we going to see yeah. even brighter, more funky Christmas trees in future? You can make any colour LEDs you want, that is right. Uh, the most efficient are the blue and the red, and in between it's not so efficient, but they're still pretty bright. What about ultraviolet, though? Because um, yeah. I'm thinking there are lots of uses for ultraviolet light. Can we make LEDs that make ultraviolet? Well, that's a really good question. Yes, we can, but at the moment they're not very efficient. So if you have deep ultraviolet light, it kills all bacteria and viruses, so you can use it for water purification. But at the moment, they're not so efficient. If you put up the efficiency, this may happen in the future. I was just thinking that would be really neat for countries where you had, say, solar panels, lots of sunshine, but you want to make ultraviolet because you could filter water Mm. past Mm. UV LEDs and it it would blast out the bugs. Absolutely, that's right. It kills everything, yes. If you've got a question about anything to do with LEDs, your fairy lights, or Christmas in general, then do get in touch with us. It's Chris Smith, Dominic Ford and Dave Ansell. Here in the Christmas kitchen, also Professor Colin Humphreys, who you heard there from Cambridge University, and joining us from Bangor, Paul Mullins, who's been looking at why we do or don't fall for bargains. So if you have any questions on those things, you can get in touch now. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist. Dominic, got an uh, email here um, from Hisham. He says, what would happen to TV transmissions at light speed? So if you were trying to watch the telly and you're on Father Christmas's sleigh, because he has to travel at light speed or he wouldn't be able to get around everybody just on one night, would he? What would the TV pictures look like? Because the signals are arriving at light speed, aren't they? Well, the first problem you'd have would be that the frequencies would all be wrong because... TV transmitters produce radio waves at very particular frequencies that your TV tunes to. And if you're moving at a speed relative to that transmitter, then you get an effect called a redshift or a blue shift, where those frequencies are either compressed together as you're travelling towards the radio waves coming to get to, towards you, or if you're moving away from a transmitter, then you see those waves being stretched out. So you find the frequencies were all wrong when you were trying to tune your TV set. The other thing, of course, if you're moving really quickly you've got that picture being encoded on that radio signal being produced by a transmitter. And so if you were travelling really very fast away from those waves, then you'd see people moving more slowly or more quickly. And in fact, your TV probably couldn't decode the signal at all to work out how to turn it into a picture. So Father Christmas would have to have a video or a DVD player on the sleigh? DVD player on the sleigh, I think, would be my solution. Okie dokie. Dave? So another Christmassy thing which everyone loves are candles. So I thought I've got a nice candle here and I would light it. And the first question I'd like to ask is what shape is a candle flame? Uh, it's a pointy shape, so it's broader at the bottom, pointy at the top, brighter at the top too. Looks like it's going out as well, which is not very encouraging. <laughs> Give it a chance to catch up. OK, so that's what, you, what it looks like from the in, outside. But if we look inside the flame, it's quite interesting. How are you going to do that? So what I've got here is a sieve. And if you put a sieve over a flame, it takes the heat out of it and stops it burning. So if I put the sieve down over the top of the flame, you see something rather beautiful. Ah, right. So I'm, look- I'm literally looking down on the flame from above. I'm looking right down inside the candle flame now. The flame stops at the grill. It doesn't go through the grill of the sieve. 
I can see the flame is hollow so that I can see a, a flame around the outside with a hole in the middle, effectively. So the yellow bit is only around the outside. Uh, and, and interestingly, as the flame stops, it starts making smoke. OK, so the flame is hollow, that's right, because the way a candle works is you get molten wax, which is drawn up the wick, that evaporates, and that's basically just fuel. And for that to burn, it's got to meet oxygen. And so the only place it gets really hot and burns is on the oxygen, is where it meets the oxygen, which is on the outside because the air's outside it. And you're noticing smoke. As I put the gauze down, if it's very, very high up, you get a very black smoke because that means you're stopping the flame when it's partially burnt. So it's producing soot and you get a very, very sooty flame. If you go an awful long way down, it goes white. And this white smoke is the wax, which hasn't even started burning yet, cooling down again and basically producing little particles of wax, which looks like smoke. It just struck me that what we're seeing here uh, with the flame stopping where it meets the grill, that's effectively how a Davy safety mining lamp works, isn't it? Yep, that's right. The way, um, so Humphrey Davy, back in the beginning of the 19th century, um, solved a huge problem in mines whereby you'd get, build up explosive gases, but you wanted to be able to see, um, so you wanted to flame. And so what he did was covered the flame with a gauze, and that meant that any explosive gases, the fire couldn't get through the gauze, it would be safe. And also the flame changed colour and things depending on what explosive gases were in there. So you got a warning and you could get out before everything went bang. Now, Dave, I know you've got a, a fruit fetish, but I presume you haven't filled my kitchen with these deliciously smelling and very juicy oranges other than just... For, there must be some science in this. So this is a really, really nice trick you can do at the Christmas dinner table if you're careful about the flammable things around your candle. So make sure there's nothing flammable around your candle. And then peel an orange, but try and peel it in such a way as you don't bend the skin at, hardly at all. So you want to be very, very careful, probably cut it with a knife, and then very, very carefully remove it so the skin is basically like it was on the orange. I don't know if you ever noticed that when you squeeze an orange skin, you get a kind of spray coming out of it sometimes. Yeah, I always thought that was a bit of orange juice working its way through the peel. It's not actually orange juice, and I can show you how we can tell that okay, by so, so squeezing it next to the candle. Here we go. Ooh! Gosh, it's like a flamethrower. So we're getting a sort of little burst of flame when that spray meets the candle. That's amazing. So literally, the sp I can see the spray coming out, and it jets into the candle flame, and... It ignites instantly. There's obviously a lot of oil in there then, something very flammable anyway. So it's an oil called limonene, um, which is what the orange uses to protect itself from insects. It's insecticidal. And it's also a hydrocarbon, so basically like petrol, and it's incredibly flammable. So if you squirt it into a nice spray into the candle flame... Oh, that was huge. <laughs> it'll burn very, very quickly, and you get rather a nice little fireball. There you go. You thought the orange peel was absolutely useless. Thank you very much, Dave. Before that, though, you couldn't talk about Christmas without talking about the star of Bethlehem. We've actually had a question in, Dominic, from one of our listeners. Stephen wanted to know what this might actually have been. Well, this is a bit of an old chestnut, whether any astronomical objects that we know about could have been this star in the east that the wise men saw that guided them to the stable. Now, Colin, I think when you're not researching LEDs, you actually wrote a scientific paper about this about ten years ago. First of all, star in the east, what, what does that mean? Well, it could mean the Magi came from the east, and when they looked to the east of them, they saw a star in the east. The Greek in the east also means at its rising, so this star may have risen above the horizon when they saw it. OK, so they saw a star rising in the east. Yes, that's right. And that would have been in the morning sky. 
I guess. Um, yes, that's right, in the morning sky, that's, that's right. And in terms of what sort of object this might have been, do we know what sorts of objects astronomers studied at that time? They were very good at astronomy. The ancient astronomers, I mean, the night sky just looked so bright, it dominated, and we didn't have street lights and pollution. And so they knew more about the stars than most of us knew. I mean, most people would look at the moon, and from the size of the moon, they could tell you the precise day of the month. So they knew a lot about stars. Certainly for town folks like me, you go out mm. into the countryside, it's incredible how spectacular a dark night sky really is. Well, that's right. And if you go into the desert, it's even more spectacular, yes. Yeah. So what sorts of objects were they looking at? OK, so I think... I think if you look at what Matthew's Gospel says, and that's the earliest source we have for the Star of Bethlehem, one thing it says is that Herod asked these magi, the wise men, the exact time the star appeared. So this suggests it was a newly appeared star. At a certain time it appeared, before that it didn't appear. And that narrows down what the Star of Bethlehem might have been. So it could have been a supernova, you know, it shines out brightly, or a nova. Um, or it could have been a comet, because a comet comes in and you can't see it when it's a long way away and it comes closer than you can see it. Or it might have been a meteor. So that's the first clue. So that's like Comet Ison that, that we've been talking about in the last month or so, but in fact didn't turn out to be quite spectacular. As that's right. That was meant to be a really long-tail comet, and, and it broke up before the, you know, before the, the long tail could develop. Um, so the second clue is that Matthew's Gospel says that this star appeared to move in the sky. So they saw it in the east to start with, and then when they got to Jerusalem, it says the star went before them as they went to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is due south of Jerusalem, and so the star went slowly through the night sky from the east to the south in the time the Magi made their journey. But the most amazing clue and the most peculiar clue in Matthew's Gospel is it says the star stood over the place where the child was born. And there's only one star that can do that, and that's a long-tailed comet. And I brought along a photograph here. This is a very famous comet called Donatus Comet over Paris in 1858. And we haven't seen long-tailed comets in a generation like this. But here's a comet low in the sky with a huge tail pointing up into the sky. And that tail appears to point the star actually over a building here in Paris. The comet is the only star which can point uh, to an actual building or an actual place. So that's pointing almost halfway across the sky. Yes. It's really forming this arrow shape that seems to be pointing towards a particular building. That's right, on the that's horizon. right. Yes, that's right. There's another picture, a comet in 1577, a woodcut in Prague, and it's this huge tail, this comet, pointing towards this particular place. I guess a supernova, it just wouldn't do that. It wouldn't move. It wouldn't that's move. that's a star exploding in the very distant universe. It's in a particular constellation, yeah. and that would never be seen to move across it, the sky. No, and also it can't point out a place on Earth either. It's far too high up. It doesn't have a tail. Do we know what comet this could have been? The Chinese made a record of comments. There's a long-tailed comet in 5 BC. I think that was a star of Bethlehem. I think Jesus was born in 5 BC. So 5 BC it is. Now, Chris, you've got an experiment for us here. Thank you, Dominic. Well, we thought we're getting towards the end of the programme. It's probably safe now to uh, have a go at making our party popper because you can't have a Christmas party without a party popper, can you? OK, so just to set the scene, we thought we would try to make a fairly big bang. We thought, how can we make a fairly big bang to propel the contents of our party popper? So what we've got is a balloon which we've put the usual things you would find in a party popper in there and uh, I see you also brought around the hydrogen cylinder, which is good, Dave, because we filled it with hydrogen. So we've got tied to the bin outside, because I'm not doing this in my kitchen. Probably not good for your insurance risk, no. No. So we've got a balloon outside full of hydrogen with the glitter and everything in it, and it's tied onto the bin. So we're going to nip outside, and uh, then we're going to see if we can light it. Now, the reaction we should get, I mean, we should tell people what probably should happen. So what are we expecting? 
So there's lots of oxygen in the air. Hydrogen reacts very, very quickly and very violently with oxygen. Hydrogen is H, oxygen is O to produce H2O, which is, of course, water. But that water is going to be very, very hot, so it's going to be expanding very rapidly. So it should wobble the air, which we should hear as some sound. OK, right, well, let's start heading outside and get ourselves rigged up. Just going to go out into the driveway. Apologies to my neighbours. <laughs> You're going to be popular. Yeah, possibly. Gosh, it's cold out here, Dave. Well, here we are. Just get the cable through. So we're now in the driveway, and um, we've got the balloon is uh, tied to the bin. It's slightly windy out here. I hope we can actually get this to work. So we've got, we're light, going to light it with a candle, if we can get it to light. I'm not, I'm not sure it's going to do it, Dave. It's too windy. Right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Gosh. OK, that, that's quite some party popper, I have to say. That was pretty loud, actually. <clears throat> I, I, can you do it again, Dave? I think you've run out of hydrogen now. <laughs> OK, sorry, neighbours. So it did work. We're almost at the end of the programme. Probably time just for a couple more questions. So we'll just quickly have a look at some other questions that we've got here. So, Dominic, one for you. And this is a question which has come in from Gavin Francis, who said, if Father Christmas was on an Earth-bound asteroid, it was whizzing in towards Earth and it was going to impact the Earth, could he jump off before it actually impacted on the Earth? Could you jump free? I think you'd actually find that relatively easy because asteroids are rather strange bodies. They're so small, they're so light, they didn't have very much gravity to them. And, in fact, some of these asteroids are spinning and there's a centrifugal force because of the rotation of the asteroid, and that centrifugal force is stronger than the gravitational attraction towards the centre of that asteroid. So, in fact, you would be spun off without even jumping at all. So even an asteroid that that was relatively large, I think with your legs, if you propelled yourself at a metre per second or so, you would just achieve escape velocity and drift off into space. But but aren't some of these asteroids already whizzing along at kilometres per second? They're going incredibly fast, aren't they? That's right, but if you jumped off enough time before the asteroid was going to hit, then you would move away far enough that you would just fly past the Earth while the asteroid slams straight into the middle of it. Thank you very much, Dominic. Well, that's it for 2013. Thank you very much for staying with The Naked Scientists this year. Thank you also to our guests this week, Colin Humphreys and also Paul Mullins, and to Dave and Dominic for joining me. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. We're looking forward to making some more next year in 2014. In the meantime, have a wonderful Christmas and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.